Well, hopefully our Bibles are open, or yours is open, uh, to Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to just stay in verses 1 to 9 this evening. Now, when I was a teenager, my friend and I uh, used to enjoy, uh, on a Saturday evening, staying up late when our parents allowed us to watch Match of the Day. And we would sometimes watch it without knowing what the scores were on Match of the Day. And I would hate doing that. I never enjoy it, even now. If my team are playing at any sport and I'm watching the highlights, I always want to know what the score is before I watch it. Because otherwise, I'm anxious, nervous, um, wondering what's going to happen, just like when you watch it live. So I know if my team lose, I'll go to bed. And even now, I won't bother watching the game. But in fact, our Christian lives can be a lot like this. If we don't know the end, then we're going to be anxious and worried and nervous and wondering what's going to happen. But last week, at the end of chapter 3, we saw that in the end, we win. In the end, there is victory. In the end, we will be with Jesus and we will be like him. We don't have to be anxious during the game, during this time, during this period, because we know that the result in the end is going to be good. And in that context, Paul in chapter 1, verse 1 of chapter 4, tells us to stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. And we can do so because we know that the end is good. We can stand firm because we know that the end is good. Now, what does standing firm mean? Well, in uh, a Bible dictionary, you would read uh, that it is willing subjection to his authority. Willing subjection to his authority. It's not to collapse or to resist his authority when the pressure comes. And you can see the importance Paul places on this by his description of how he feels about the believers in Philippi In chapter 1, he's given them, uh, if you like, how he feels. So when he gives them the message of how to stand firm, they know they're taking it from a man who truly loves them. He calls them, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for. He calls them his joy and his crown. He calls them his dear friends. Just like in chapter 1, and in verse 8 specifically, he says about how he longs to see them there. He tells them how he loves them. He's not telling them uh, from a position of just wanting to tell them what to do for the sake of it. He's telling them because he knows what's best and he wants those that he loves to live what is best, to live for Christ, to stand firm in him. And Paul is saying that he feels like they are his reward for his work in the gospel. It's like an athlete in those days would receive a wreath. And that is how Paul describes them. You are my wreath, you are my my crown, my reward, my joy. And he tells them he loves them so that he can give them this message. And he tells them to stand firm in the Lord in this way. So how do we stand firm in the Lord? Well, he gives a a whole load of things in chapter 4 that we're going to look at tonight. Stand firm in the Lord in this way. And the first thing is standing firm in godly unity. Standing firm in the Lord requires godly unity. 
Now, it seems that there was a dispute in the church between two women, Euodia and Syntyche. Now, that's assuming that's how you pronounce it. I can't read that word very well. But there was two women in the church that were having a dispute. And we don't know much about these women. Although it's possible, if you read Acts chapter 16, that they were among the women uh, by the river in Philippi that Paul went to see as they were having a, a prayer meeting. Paul in, uh, in Philippi started the church really with a group of women, didn't he? In Acts chapter 16. And in verse 3, he tells how they contended with him in the cause of the gospel. And we're not told either what this dispute is about, although we can assume it's of nothing of uh, primary importance because Paul does not come down on either side. So it seems to me as though it's some kind of uh, dispute that's personal, something personal. I don't know, maybe they turned up in the same dress or something on Sunday and they do it every week, I don't know. But it was something that wasn't that important, but something personal. And it could have been, in another way, over any uh, kind of secondary issue that as Christians we can often fall out over all the time, can't, can't we? And Paul says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now notice how Paul says, I plead twice to both parties, showing that they both need to come together. He does not lay the fault at any one of them individually, but tells them both to be of the same mind in the Lord. And unity is commanded all through this letter, as it's part of standing firm. A Christian and a church cannot stand firm in the Lord if they are not united together. In the context of Philippians, we see in chapter 1 and verse 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. Chapter 2, verse 2, tells us, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Chapter 2, verse 14, tells us do everything without complaining or arguing. And to an extent, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 talks of unity, when we should look out for the needs of others and have the same attitude of humility that Jesus has. So you can see through all of this letter, there is this strand of you being united together, standing firm together in the Lord. And Paul tells them to be of the same mind in the Lord. They must come together on the things that matter and put aside their differences for the cause of the gospel. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago when we said that everything else is as dung when compared to the great truths of Christ, the great riches of Christ. Now we may have differences in the way things are done, but we must be in the same mind in the Lord, focusing on those things that are of first importance. Paul sees the issue of unity as important enough to put the receiver of the letter as an arbitrator in the matter. Look at verse 3. He says, yes, I ask you, my true companion. In, some, uh, in the older NIV, it says, my true yoke fellow. And it doesn't know, they don't know, no one knows whether it was an actual person whose name means yoke fellow. A bit like in the epistle to Philemon, um, the, the name Philemon, or sorry, the name Onesimus, 
has a meaning that goes with the letter. And in this case, it may be that it was a real person. We, we just don't know. But he's saying that he was a companion, someone that he can trust, that he's worked with. I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Who, this, who it was that Paul was speaking to is unknown. It might be the, the senior pastor or something at the church, but it is someone that Paul sees as a companion. And Paul wants these women to be reconciled because he remembers how they contended at his side in the gospel. Because disunity impacts the work of the gospel. People will not come and be part of a church where people are falling out over things that are just petty and not important, that are not gospel issues. When Christians are not speaking to one another, over um, various things. The testimony is awful, isn't it? And Jesus said that it is by our love for one another that people will know that we are his disciples. Uh, There's a quote by Francis Schaeffer. He says, We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. We need to be united in the Lord. Paul says that he remembers when they worked with him, when they contended for the gospel with him. He remembers when they were united with with Clement, with the rest of the co-workers who he doesn't name, but are in, he says, the book of life. The book of life is uh, a book where all the names of Christians are written. Those that are gods are in the book of life. Can't be rubbed out, There forever, Christian is in the book of life. We read about it in Revelation. But Paul remembers when he was with all those people. And when he was, when they were standing together, working firm with with Paul and Euodia, Syntyche, Lydia, Clement and, and the others. When they were together, contending in the gospel, a church was born. The church in Philippi. But when they when when we're not working together, the work of the gospel is hindered and held back. Some of you may remember, if you're into uh, sports, in the 2010 Football World Cup, uh, the French national team were constantly falling out with one another. And there was an argument in the dressing room uh, with one player, and he decided he was going home. Uh, The World Cup was in South Africa, and he lived in France, I presume, and he decided he's off. And then another player decided, well, we're all going to go on strike. And they didn't train. They refused to train for the manager well, they all went out of the World Cup really early because they lost. They were rubbish. And the reason was because they weren't united. They weren't focusing on the prize, on winning, on representing their country. It was all about personal disputes within the team. And in the same way as a church, if we're focusing on personal disputes and falling out over things, we're not focusing on the prize We're not focusing on the gospel. We're not focusing on winning people. We're focusing on ourselves. And Paul says that this is wrong. And we can have disputes over issues which can cause us to not be of the same mind. We can fall out over so many things, can't we? Over the style of music or the style of dress. We can fall out over personal things like someone said something that was offensive or you don't like the way you were treated at a certain point. We can avoid members of the church because of the way they look or because we don't know what to say to them. 
There's all sorts of ways where we can not be one in the Lord. But all these kinds of things undermine the work of the gospel, don't they? So we need to come together under the banner of the gospel and walk together in unity as a church. We need to remember what our core beliefs are, that Jesus Christ is God who came to earth, who lived perfectly, who died for sinners, who is risen from the dead, who is ascended in heaven, who is returning and has given us eternal life. We need to remember that in a hundred years' time, we're not going to care about what song we sang or whether someone smelt a certain way or because they said a certain something because we're going to be with Jesus. So let us be together, be one in the Lord. And we talked this morning about uh, pride and how we need to be reconciled. And I would encourage you, if there is uh, someone that said something to you that's offensive or treated you in a way that you don't particularly like, rather than fall out with them, go to them. As Paul says, I plead with you that you would come and be together and be one in the Lord. So standing firm in the Lord requires godly unity. Well, how could these women, and indeed anyone else who is in conflict, come together in the Lord? Well, Paul gives a whole host of exhortations that help us to be united with other believers when there is conflict. In fact, these commands from Paul can help with conflict of any kind, whether that's in work or at home um, or in the church. And in fact, if people live this way in governments in the world, it would be a much more peaceful place. And they are split into a few big areas. And the first way uh, is in our attitude. Standing firm in the Lord requires godly attitudes. First of all, look at the attitude in verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoicing in the Lord will help these women and help us overcome conflict. You see, rejoicing isn't an emotion. Rejoicing is a state of mind. It's an attitude. It's not jumping up and down as if a goal has been scored when disaster comes. That's just ridiculous. But rejoicing in the Lord is remembering all those things with which God has blessed us that cause rejoicing and that can never be taken away. We rejoice in the Lord when we consider his greatness. We rejoice in the Lord when we consider the cross. We rejoice in the Lord when we consider the resurrection and how we, with Christ, are raised from the dead, that we will be with him forever. You see, our circumstances change, but those truths never do. So we can always rejoice in the Lord because we've always got many, many blessings to rejoice in. We remember that the end, as we said before, is secure and victorious. We can always rejoice in the Lord, but it's a state of mind. And Paul says it twice to make sure the point is taken on. I say it again, rejoice. And if we're rejoicing in the Lord, we can stand firm with others because our focus is on him and not on ourselves and our disputes. Our focus is on his goodness and his grace rather than our sinfulness and our circumstances. We stand firm together with an attitude of rejoicing. We also stand firm together with an attitude of gentleness. Look at verse 5. It says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Now the Greek word for gentleness here is difficult to translate. Uh, It literally means not insisting on your rights or being content with less 
than what you are due. To describe it simply means to just let it go. Just let it go. Now, some things are just not worth arguing over, are they? In fact, most things are not worth arguing about. And I'll give you an example. Now, some of you are surprised to know that I am 30 today. Some of you thought I was much older than 30. And in fact, some of you have been more than happy to tell me that you thought I was older than 30. And if you haven't told me, you've told my wife, maybe not realizing that Paula does actually talk to me and share things with me. Not only that, you have thought that I was older than Paula when she is years older than me. Now, what can I do? how can I react with that slander? Well, I can be offended. I can storm off. I can go home. I can argue with you all and I can moan and complain. Or I can just let it go. <laughs> I can be gentle. And that's what I'm going to choose to do, so don't worry about it. You see, being gentle is not demanding what you think you deserve. But it's realizing that the gospel is bigger than our rights. It's so easy to want to get your own back. But the Bible tells us just to let it go. Just let it go. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And you can see how this can help in situations of conflict, can't you? When we don't insist on having to be right all the time, and we can just let it go, it's an amazing resolver of conflicts. And Paul says, let it be evident to all, not so that you can show off your gentleness, but that so people know that it's not worth fighting with you over the small things that just don't matter. Fight the big things, of course. Fight for the gospel. But don't die over the fact that someone thought you were older than you were. You know, it's just not worth it. Let it go. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And Paul uh, gives a reminder, straight after this, that the Lord is near. And we can be gentle, we can pray, as we'll see in a moment, because the Lord is near. Now some regard this as talking about when Jesus returns, the return of Christ is near. In which case we should be gentle and not be fighting over the small things. Because if we believe in the imminent return of Christ, we'll realise that it's just too short a time to be letting these things control our lives. But some people interpret this as the Lord's presence being with us, so we shouldn't fall out over things and uh, we, shouldn't, we should be rejoicing because he doesn't want to be around people falling out. He wants us to rejoice in him. Either way, both interpretations have the same application. It's not worth falling out over silly things and we should be standing firm together in the Lord. And we should also, uh, because the Lord is near, stand firm together in prayer. This is another attitude. Look at verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and by petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God is near, and therefore we don't need to be anxious about anything. God is near so we can pray to him. But how often we don't live by this, do we? We do get anxious, don't we? We are anxious because we forget the greatness, the goodness, the power, the promises, the sovereignty of our God. We need to be rejoicing in the Lord. We need to be gentle. 
We need to remember he is near. We need to be people of prayer so our anxieties can go. What should we do instead of being anxious? In every situation, every situation, whether it be big situations or small situations, we bring our prayers and petitions to God. You know, in, in Sunday school, uh, we, can ha- we, can, we, you know, we ask children for prayer requests, and sometimes they'll bring something to us that as an adult you would never dream of bringing, but, it, but God cares about those things that the children bring. God cares about them. He cares about the children. He cares about what they want to pray about. Whether it's a big thing, a small thing, or anything in between, in every situation, we should be praying to God. And there is a difference between prayer and petition. We can often think of prayer as as kind of like going to Tesco and having your list of, of things you want and asking God for them all and expecting to go to some sort of checkout and have God give you them for free. But that's not what prayer is. Prayer and petition are two different things here. Prayer is more general. It means adoration, devotion, worship. Whereas petition is where we spend time uh, asking God for what we need. But it's uh, the, the right way around. Because if we are spending time adoring, praising, meditating, uh, looking at God in devotion, what we will ask for are the right kind of things. If we start with what we think we need, we will ask for the wrong sort of things. I think I need all sorts of things that when I come to God and I really focus on him, I realize actually, you know what? I really don't need that stuff. We need to be people of prayer. And we pray with thanksgiving for all those things that we talked about earlier, but also we we, we should be rejoicing in his mercy, in his power, in his promises, in his justice, in our future, and and so on and so on. There's so much to thank God for. Our attitude in prayer shouldn't be, Lord, this is all the stuff I want, please can I have it? We adore God, We, we, we focus on him, we worship and praise him, we thank him, and our petitions will be just what they ought to be, and God will answer our prayers. You see, the focus has changed from looking down into our situation in what we're anxious about to looking up at our deliverer and our anxieties can melt away as we look at Jesus and focus on him. So when you're anxious, go to Jesus. Look at him. Pray. Focus on him. And it says that we will have peace which transcends all understanding. Peace which transcends understanding. You know, non-Christians cannot understand a Christian that has the most awful of circumstances and yet is at complete peace. Non-Christians, it's such a testimony to them, they just don't understand how a Christian can be at such peace in such trials. But when we're focused on Jesus, that's what we have. Peace that passes understanding. We don't need to be anxious We need to pray. We need to focus on Jesus. And praying about something brings peace, and so does praying about someone. And this is where it can help in the conflict with these two women. It's very hard to stay upset about somebody or with somebody when you are bringing them before the throne of grace in prayer, isn't it? It's extremely hard to do that. And I I would encourage it um, in, in your marriage. You know, pray for your wife or your husband every day. Pray for them. Because there's often conflicts in the home, and if we're never praying about our spouse, it will impact your marriage. Pray for your husband and wife. Pray for them. 
And it will certainly help in the conflicts that we have in our marriages. In our home, one of the conflicts we often have is at dinner time. Not with me and Paula, we don't often fight about food, because I cook. But we do often have conflicts with our children, and they have this attitude sometimes where they can look at food and decide before they've tried it that they're not going to like it. I don't know if you ever find that with your children, but you can just, I mean, some foods, when I was working in Birmingham, I went to this Ethiopian restaurant, and it was absolutely awful. I looked at the food, and it did, it looked absolutely disgusting, and I eat anything, and I thought it looked horrible, but I did try it, and it was disgusting, but usually, when we look at food, and we decide we're not going to like it, usually we don't like it, because we've had that decision already made in our minds, haven't we? Our attitude is that of, well, I'm not going to like it. I don't want it. But the, the same is for us. When we are rejoicing and we are gentle and we are prayerful, we have an attitude that enables us to stand firm together in the Lord. When we are not focusing on Jesus, when we are not rejoicing in gentle and in prayer, our attitude is wrong, so we are not going to be able to stand firm. We have to focus on Christ Just like when you look at the food and think, oh, that's going to be disgusting, when we're not looking um, at Jesus, we're going to just think, you know, know, I can't live this Christian life. I can't do it. I'm not going to like it. But focusing on Christ, we can stand firm in the Lord, can't we? We've got to have godly attitudes to stand firm. And our attitude is shown by our rejoicing, our gentleness, and our prayer. There's so much application there, isn't there? I can't possibly, I was trying to pinpoint some specifics, but there's just so much, um, it's almost impossible. But think about your attitude. Do you rejoice in the Lord always? Do you have an attitude of gentleness? Do you um, pray in every situation? We need to be these kind of people with this kind of attitude, don't we? And as we come to the final two verses of our passage, we see how the attitude of our hearts pours out in the way that we think and we act. You see, standing firm in the Lord means having godly thoughts and actions. Firstly, our thoughts are focused on in verse 8. So we're moving on from our attitude to the things we think about. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. All six of these things, true, noble, right, pure, lovely, and admirable, are described as excellent or praiseworthy. And we could do a whole series on these words, but just as a... I don't know if you can read that or not, really. It's a bit small. Um, But I was doing a bit of a word study on each of these words, and this is what they mean. These are the things that we need to be thinking about So whatever is true, that's the opposite of dishonest or unreliable. Whatever is noble, that is things that are dignified or worthy of respect. Whatever is right, things that are to the standards that God has. Whatever is pure, wholesome, not mixed with moral impurity. Whatever is lovely, things that promote love and not conflict whatever is admirable, things that are positive and constructive rather than negative, sorry, positive and constructive rather than negative and destructive. And these things are excellent and praiseworthy. 
one way I would look at them is the things that you think about, are they things that I would share with other believers and be excited about them with them? Are they things I would look at and think about with other believers and be excited about with them? Would you invite another Christian over to your house and share these thoughts with them? And if we are doing things that are are, are dishonest, disrespectful, unwholesome, negative and destructive, etc., we won't want to share them, will we? We won't want to be sharing those kind of thoughts with other believers. And the the phrase, think about, uh, in some versions is translated meditate. It's more than a one-off thing. It's a constant meditation, a constant thinking about. These are the things we should think about. And you could apply all these things to Jesus, couldn't you? Jesus is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. And so is God's word. And it's right that we should meditate on Christ through his word. But there are other things that are not reading the Bible per se that you could uh, put, on these th- put these labels to. Certain books, some, some TV programs perhaps, exercising, hobbies, friendships and so on can be any or all of these things. But really, we, to, to apply this, we think more of the negative as well, don't we? We think about things that are opposite. And there are certain books and TV programs exercising sometimes perhaps, hobbies, friendships, and so on, that we can think about that are not for the Christian. I refer you back uh, in applying this to chapter 1 and verse 10, that you may discern what is best, right? That you may discern what is best. There's no way that I can stand here and give you a list of things. All these things fit all of those words. We must discern what is best, Uh, Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7 says, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. In IT, when I worked there um, a couple of months ago, uh, we would always say in, in, in software testing, rubbish in, rubbish out. If someone coded something that was rubbish when we tested it, that's exactly what we got. Then it happens so, so it happens so many times. But it's also true in our Christian lives. Rubbish in, rubbish out. If we're filling our minds with rubbish, then we're going to be living out rubbish. And Paul um, is telling us that with these words. We should think on things that are good, think that are true, noble, right, and so on. If we're putting rubbish into our minds, rubbish out. If you look at statistics on the various uh, shootings that have happened in America, in these schools, you'll be amazed at how many are related to pornography and to uh, video games sometimes that involve loads of shootings and all these kind of things. It's rubbish in, rubbish out. And it's true for us as well. Think of things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. And Paul tells us in our final verse for this evening how we should act. What should come out? As we think about things like this, how is our lives going to look? Well, in verse 9, it tells us, What you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, Paul uh, was an apostle of God, and he wrote the majority of the New Testament. He could tell us that we should put into practice what he says, because he was writing the word of God. And the word practice means to repeat continuously. And this is what we should be doing, continually repeating 
the obedience to what Paul and the other writers of Scripture have told us. We should be repeating the obedience of the Scriptures. But first, we have to have learnt it, received it, heard it, seen the people in it, in order to know what to practice. In other words, we need to be thinking about it, meditating upon it, so we know how to apply it. Now, Paul was a special person in the history of the church, and we would do well to emulate him and to look at his example. But could we say the same thing? Should I stand here and say to you uh, what you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me put into practice? Well, I should. I should be able to say that. I should live my life in such a way that you could look at it and say that, yeah, I can follow what he does because he's living for Christ. But I know, I know in myself that I fell miserably in so many ways. But nevertheless, I have children that do follow my example. I have young people and uh, Sunday school and members of the congregation, perhaps, that look at the example that I set and want to follow that. So whether I like it or not, I am an example. And whether you like it or not, you are too. And although none of us would stand here and say, yes, put into practice what I do, in reality, there are people that do put into practice what you do. So we need to make sure that we are living out lives that are right, that are for God, that people can follow. Paul ends by saying that the God of peace will be with us. If we have holy thoughts and holy lives, then we will be at peace with God. If we are living in disobedience, our Christian lives will be anything but peaceful. We'll be miserable. And you know that, don't you? You know that when you're in sin and you're disobeying God, life is miserable. I know that in my, in my life. As much as I think before I do things, oh yeah, I will enjoy it, it's miserable. Sin is miserable. It's a, dece- a deceit of Satan that it's going to be good. Because when you do it, it's always, always a misery. We are at peace with God. The God of peace is with us when we are living lives for his glory. And holy thoughts and holy lives will help these two women in the church and anybody else who has conflict. Because as you put into practice those things that are holy and and true and lovely and all those things, we will be people of peace, not people of conflict. And the God of peace is with us too. So this week, consider what you think about. Review what you watch, what you read, what you look at, what you spend time doing. Could you say that those things are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable, excellent, praiseworthy? I'll leave you with the verse in Proverbs, for as he thinks within himself, so he is. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. Well, we're going to close with our final song. And we'll stand together. By faith we see the hand of God.